0: An article uh, published by the International Mission Board, uh, Pastor Andy Johnson writes on the uh, of the following experience. The woman on the phone was gripped by that kind of fear that sounds like anger. I was considering sending her adult son overseas for the summer. The place he hoped to go wasn't a war zone exactly, but it was uncomfortably close to a war zone, and Mama wasn't happy. I told her we were trying to be careful, wise, we're seeking counsel, and how the risks seemed reasonable given the gospel opportunities. None of that helped. And finally, in frustration, she said, okay, if you can personally guarantee he'll be absolutely safe, I'll be okay with him going. I replied something like, ma'am, nobody can do that. I can't even guarantee he wasn't run over by a bus five minutes ago right here in Washington, DC. This was not the high mark for my pastoral sensitivity. I can relate to such comments. But later in the article, he says, I stand by my point. Perfect safety is an illusion everywhere. Uh, Two years ago, we had a missionary family uh, speak at Redeemer, and they served in a dangerous war zone in the Horn of Africa. And Americans often ask him, How can you take your family to such an unsafe place? And then he likes to ask them Have you ever known a deadbolt to stop cancer? Is there a security system elaborate enough to prevent heart attacks? Does the comfort of family guarantee your children won't be abused? His questions get at the same truth the pastor pointed out. Perfect safety is an illusion. But that's regularly the first question we ask, isn't it? Will it be safe? Is the neighborhood safe? As another missionary to Equatorial Guinea put it, our idol of safety infests our decision to serve our idol of safety infests our decision to serve following jesus is not safe yes we're safe in the sense that god keeps us as his own but we're not safe in the sense that we won't suffer Jesus promised the opposite. In fact, as a matter of basic discipleship, the apostles say this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And today's passage will confront our idol of safety. But my hope is that it also replaces that idol with refuge in God's grace. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1 of Acts. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, ...and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him... ...and seeing that he had faith to be made well... ...said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking... And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered The church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this word. We are grateful this chapter is in our Bibles, and we pray that you would use it to encourage our faith, to strengthen our uh, hands and feet. For ministry to embolden us to speak the word of God without fear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to cover the whole chapter. Uh, and next week, I want to spend some more time on uh, this little section in, in Lystra... where, where Paul contr- confronts uh, the idolatry. Uh, but today, I'll try to capture kind of the big picture of chapter 14... And you're going to, you need need two, there are two things you need to observe up up front. One is the pattern of the missionary work. And so Paul starts in Antioch of Pisidia and he moves to, uh, down to uh, Iconium and then to Lystra and then down to Derbe. But in each one of these cities, a pattern emerges where they preach the gospel, they're persecuted and then they move and they... Preach the gospel and they persecute it and then they move and they preach the gospel, persecute it, and then, and then they move till they get to Derby and then they return back to the very same cities, uh, strengthening the churches with these words Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so when you get these little snapshots in these cities, what, what you're getting is this pattern. Uh, that discipleship includes preaching the gospel and suffering for the gospel. Preaching the gospel and suffering for the gospel. Now the other observation we need up front is this. We need to kind of read this chapter backwards. Uh, So if you want to go to verse 26 with me, what we're going to see there is that God's grace drives the missionary work. It says... From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. So this is beforehand uh, in the other Syrian Antioch. They had been commissioned to the grace of God uh, to do the work. And it's the grace of God that is doing this work. And uh, then it says when they arrive, so they they go through all their cities, they get to... Back to Syria and Antioch. And it says, when they arrived in verse 27 and gathered the church together, they declared all that they had done. <laughs> no, they declared all that God had done with them. And so what they're what you're getting here is they commissioned them out with the grace of God. They come back and they tell them, the church about what the grace of God did and so when you re read chapter 14, you've got to read it with that in mind. God's grace drives the work of, of missions. You know, we're supposed to read Acts more than once so you, you get these little clues of what's going on. So that when you go back and you read it again, you're seeing, Oh, this is God's grace, and this is God's grace. So, in chapter 14, in particular, we see five things that God does by His grace. First, God emboldens the disciples to preach the gospel of grace and confront idolatrous worldviews. God emboldens the disciples to preach the gospel of grace and confront idolatrous worldviews. So what happens at the end of chapter 13 is that the Jews, they drive out Paul and Barnabas uh, from uh, Antioch And so they come to Iconium because of that. You know, they didn't want to hear the gospel there. But if these brothers are going to keep preaching, they need boldness. And God gives it to them. Uh, Verse 1, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 3, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Verse 7, this is in the face of persecution. They continued to preach the gospel. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city. There's one message these brothers can't keep quiet and it is the message of God's grace. The primary aim of missionary work is preaching the gospel of grace. Yes, we befriend people Yes, we, we dig wells, we teach ESL, we seek the good of our neighbor, we fight for justice, but foremost in our mind is spreading the news about God's grace, sharing the news about God's work to save others through Jesus Christ. But who stands behind the preaching here throughout? It's God. Remember verse 27. They declared all that God had done with them. So we see God emboldening his disciples to speak this grace. But not just that, he also emboldens them to confront idolatrous worldviews. A worldview is kind of your your all encompassing perspective on on everything that matters. Okay? It, It represents your most fundamental assumptions about life and reality and the universe. And in this case, we encounter a culture that has embraced a polytheistic worldview. This is in Lystra. The people worship Zeus, Lord of sky and rain. They believe Zeus controlled natural phenomena on earth Hermes was the son of Zeus and stories were told of him moving between the the world of the gods and the world of, of, of men. So let's say from childhood you view the world from this perspective. And then out of nowhere some strangers show up and they heal a crippled man. And you know that guy's been crippled since birth. How do you interpret that event? Well, you'd interpret it according to your polytheistic worldview. It might be a false worldview, but you're going to read it through that lens. Notice it's not the miracle that's in question. It's who did it. And for them, it had to be Zeus and and Hermes. And maybe we can offer a few sacrifices so that we appease the gods. Maybe they'll show us favor too. And once Paul and Barnabas recognize the confusion, they they rush into the crowd and confront this false worldview. They kind of deconstruct this false worldview and they replace it with the truth. (laughs) We're men of like nature with you, right? We're not gods. You should turn from these vain things, right? These, These things they've treasured since childhood, Zeus and Hermes and the amazing story. These are vain things, he calls them. No, 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 these are vain. You should turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and and, and so forth. You see how he does that? The work of missions isn't just waltzing into a village with some prepackaged message and, and getting a few decisions for Christ. We must understand the worldview shaping why people think the way they do and then confront those worldviews where they are false and where they contradict God's revelation in Scripture. And I want to talk more about about this more next week in relation to Paul confronting their idolatry in particular and and various ways this this can can help us in our own missionary work as well as our own enjoyment of God's creation uh, and, and so forth. So... We'll get there next week. But for now, I just want you to note what God is emboldening. They're they're emboldening to keep preaching the good news and then also to to deconstruct, to tear down these these false uh, worldviews. And we can trust God to embolden us to do the same thing. Number two, God authenticates the disciples' message with signs and wonders. He authenticates the disciples' message with signs and wonders. So this is verse 3, uh, the Lord. So this is the Lord himself. It says he bore witness to the word of his grace. How? By granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now we've seen this multiple times. And the first time we see it in Acts, it actually applies to Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry. So God attested to Jesus through signs and wonders. That's Acts chapter 2, Verse 22. But now the signs and wonders all of a sudden applied to the apostles. And this was God's way of showing that Jesus' ministry had not stopped. That Jesus' ministry was actually continuing now through the apostles and the church. And we should also remember that these aren't just, you know, random displays of of power that kind of run alongside one another like, like a railroad track where... They never really have anything to do with the message itself. No, rather these signs actually give concrete expression to the message they're preaching. Right? They are preaching a message about the kingdom of God healing the broken world. And a broken man gets up and walks. Right? So the point was to compel belief in the gospel Of Jesus' kingdom. They had an undeniable apologetic function. Again, what we see here is nobody's debating debating that the miracle happened. Nobody's debating that that the man was healed. They're debating who healed him. And this provides a platform for Paul and Barnabas to jump in and say, The true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ healed him. It provides them a platform to announce, hey, this is God's kingdom breaking into the present world order. But there's something more happening. And here's some homework. I want you to go home and I want you to read chapters 2 and 3 of Acts. And I want you to come back and read chapter 13 and 14 of Acts. Chapters 2 and 3 of Acts and chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. The same exact pattern happens. Peter preaches a sermon, he's got a lengthy discourse. God authenticates his message through signs and wonders. And then we get a specific example of a sign and wonder by him healing a lame man. Now we are in the ministry of Paul in Lystra and you see the same thing. Uh, after this lengthy discourse in chapter 13, God authenticating the message with signs and wonders in chapter 14, and we get a specific example of Paul doing that by healing a lame man. Now, authors are intentional about what they do. He could have written, Paul had more miracles than just the ones we see here. Why'd he choose this one? Why'd he choose to arrange it this way? So you go, oh yeah, that happened back there in Jerusalem too. To get you to think, so what's the, point? What's, what's the point he's trying to make? The point he's trying to make is that Jesus is just as much behind this guy, Paul, as he was Peter. That the mission in Jerusalem with Peter is the same mission in Lystra with Paul. But something else is this. God's kingdom was offering Not just healing for the Jews, but healing for the Gentiles. The same. It doesn't matter if you're a monotheistic, self-righteous Pharisee, or a polytheistic, licentious pagan. God's kingdom offers healing in Christ for all your brokenness. He will heal your relationship with God and one day bring for you total healing in a new heaven, a new earth. This is the message that God is authenticating and standing behind. And if he authenticates that message, we should preach that message to broken people. We should trust that message for our broken selves. It doesn't matter what kind of brokenness you have. Jesus is the answer. For broken marriages, he is the true husband who wins his bride. For broken parents, he is the wonderful counselor. For broken friendships, he knows betrayal and teaches us sacrificial love. For broken churches, he is the head and master builder against whom the gates of Hades have no power. For broken desires, he gives a new heart. For broken communion with God, he brings reconciliation. For broken communities, he is the prince of peace. For broken governments, he is king of kings and lord of lords. For broken bodies, he gives resurrection hope and on and on we could go. The world around us is broken and we are broken because of sin. And God has authenticated this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings true healing so let's preach it first to our broken selves and then take it to a broken world it is for all the same Jews and Gentiles alike number three God sustains the disciples through many tribulations God sustains the disciples through many tribulations note the tribulations from city to city uh, in Antioch the Jews contradict the disciples and then they incite others to persecute Paul and Barnabas. In Iconium, the Jews stir up the Gentiles and they poison their minds against the brothers. That's chapter 14, verse 2. Uh, then a whole bunch of them try to mistreat and stone them in chapter 14, verse 5. In Lystra, the people totally miss the point. And even after correcting them... Down in verse 18, you see, even with these words, they scarcely retrain, restrain the people. And if that wasn't a bummer, the Jews from the other cities then catch up with him and drag Paul out of the city, supposing he's dead after, after they stone him. But here's what's so remarkable. I mean, the tribulations they experience never squelch their, their missionary fervor. Oh, sure, they they flee from one town to the next when they're persecuted. But let's be clear, that decision was not based on the fear of man. That decision was based on gospel strategy and the fear of God. We know it's not the fear of man because they keep doing it from city to city. And we know it's not the fear of man because they go back to the same cities where they were persecuted. That's not fear of man. That's strategy on what is best going to serve the gospel's advance from city to city. How, though, does one keep going in the face of so many tribulations, right? We we see jealousy, contradiction, deception, mistreatment, misunderstanding, dragging you out of the city, half dead type of hostility. How, How does one get up And keep offering the gospel in that kind of world. And that's the real world. That's the real world, America. Here you go, moms and dads like me. How do you say yes when your son or daughter wants to enter the darkest war-torn abusive village to bring them the message of Christ? And how do you keep saying yes when they don't come back home? What enables you to tell others Jesus is good, good news when you're washing the gravel out of the wounds on your face? It's the grace of God in Christ. That is the only answer. You can't pump yourself up for this kind of ministry. There ain't no pep rally you can attend and and, and get yourself all worked up to keep going. You won't last unless you know God's grace and lean on God's grace. Homeschool families are like, what's a pep rally? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I got to adjust my illustration here. You won't last. Unless you know God's grace. It says at the end of our chapter they declared all that God had done with them. God sustained them through the tribulations. God's grace must give you the strength. And these happenings are in your Bible so that when you read... From city to city, they keep doing the same things. They keep preaching the same message in the face of persecution. They are in your Bible so that you look at them and go, grace sustained them, God sustained them. i look at it here. He did it again, and he's going to do that for me. You don't have to worry, let the mind, the, right, we do this, and we let the real go, like, oh, man, if I go to live in that neighborhood, that will happen to my kids, and this will happen to my, and we just let, we play out all the worst things that could possibly happen. There's grace for that day. Right? Don't borrow trouble from tomorrow, there, there is grace sufficient for today. So no matter what tribulation you're facing for the sake of Christ, grace will strengthen you through it. Grace will help you lay it all on the line to see others happy in our gracious God. Number four, God establishes churches by encouraging disciples, appointing elders and committing them to the Lord in prayer. God establishes churches, meaning even deeper in in their roots, uh, by encouraging disciples, appointing elders and committing them to the Lord in in prayer. Uh, Verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What we see here is that Paul does more than just pop into a city and win converts. Right? No, they establish the disciples by encouraging them. That is, by the words they speak, they give them the courage to act. Encouragement is not just make you feel good about yourself. It gives you courage to act in obedience to Christ. To persevere in the faith. Now notice, they don't feed them a bunch of false promises about how life is so much easier when you have Jesus. No, they make it very clear that the crown of the kingdom only comes with a cross to bear. He says, through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. Now, they're not laying out like kind of a one-time entry plan. Like the kingdom's over here and there's this door called suffering. You've you got to go through the door. And once you're in, once you suffer a little bit and you're in, you're good. That's not what he's saying. No, they're explaining that tribulation is the way of life that God ordained for his people before the kingdom comes. Okay? Okay? The must is a divine must. And it points to God's sovereign will and determination throughout Luke and Acts. The kingdom without suffering, that's coming. That's coming for us and we're going to enter it one day. But 10,000 tribulations are going to bring us to our knees before we get there. This is discipleship 101. These churches are young and this is the first, one of the first things he's telling them. He's just repeating what Jesus promised though. You read one earlier, Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake and, and here's the purpose to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So the persecution is not an accident. It's the designed platform to announce that Christ is superior to everything else in the world, including your own life. Or uh, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me they will also persecute you. Or John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. (laughs) They will persecute you. You will have tribulation. Jesus promised that his followers would suffer tribulation, which means these sufferings in the book of Acts prove that Jesus was trustworthy. He didn't lie. He told us it would be this way. Following Jesus means tribulation. And you need to know that. You need to know that so you won't be surprised and think something is wrong or think God's not in control or that the gospel isn't working when some of the freedoms you enjoy now disappear. Disappear. You need to know that so, when, so we can teach other people when we're sharing the gospel with them to count the cost. Count the cost. You can't have Jesus unless you deny yourself and take up your cross. And the cross means death in the path of love. Not something you wear around your neck or dangle from your ears. It's death in the path of love of love you need to know that so you don't throw in the towel at the first whiff of tribulation I remember facing some real hardships when I first started pastoring there were many days when I I could have just thrown in the towel I cried so much from pain and betrayal and loneliness during my first two years And I'd I'd go hide in a corner and just cry and pray. And I tell you, it was passages like this one that helped me through those days. It's passages like this one that was like, right. Tribulation is normal. It's part of the cost of following Jesus. Don't look for comfort in another church, Brett. Brett. Don't look for comfort in another city, Brett. Don't even look for comfort overseas. Running away from problems overseas. We'll call it missionary work. Got to be careful where you're seeking comfort. Don't look for ease in another job, right? I'm on the road to another meeting, a hard meeting. I don't want to go to this meeting. It's going to be awkward. I've got to say awkward things and You see a guy with lawn equipment on a trailer driving the other way. You know, he's going to mow the park. And it's like, that looks nice. I want to be on a mower all day today. That's what I want to be on. Why? Because I'd be comfortable there. Right? I don't have to talk to the grass. Grass won't keep me up at night. We do this. We want to run away from tribulation. And yet these texts, (laughs) through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All right. Let's go to the meeting. Let's go to the meeting. There's so much grace to persevere in these words. It it helps us understand Christianity, period. Period. It's our calling, Peter says. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. (laughs) So that you might follow in His steps. What did those steps look like? Christ also suffered for you. You might follow in his steps. The only church is a suffering church. Because the message of the cross is at the heart of who we are in Christ. God strengthened his disciples with this truth. God also appointed elders in the church. See that verse 23 when they had appointed elders for them in in every church. Every church gets a plurality of elders. That's the paradigm. And these men are given to the church, we know from Ephesians 1, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They lead and they teach and they protect God's people. It's not healthy when churches go without godly leadership. That's why he goes back, he returns to these cities to make sure we got mature men in place to lead the church. And so one takeaway from that is that in our missionary work, we've got to be careful Not to just kind of jump in, gather some converts, and then get out. Let's move on to the next city. No, 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 no. Are there mature leaders in place? Can these guys teach the word? Can they keep discipling and making disciples uh, themselves? We must appoint godly men to keep equipping the disciples. And even more important is committing churches to the Lord in prayer. It says, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The Lord is the only one who can build the church. The Lord is the only one who can sustain the church. The Lord is the only one who can keep the church vibrant and pure and pursuing the right things. And that means we must commit each other to the Lord in prayer. God works through prayer. I've been journaling like crazy lately the way God is answering prayers in this church and in the lives of of individuals. Weekly, sometimes daily, I see answers to prayer. He he asks us to come boldly before Him in Christ. He says to cast your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. So don't miss this this privilege of, of prayer. Let me see here. And finally, God nurtures sending churches by reporting the gospel's advance. He nurtures sending churches by reporting the gospel's advance. This is in Acts 13, verse 3. uh, The church in Antioch, they commissioned Paul and Barnabas. Almost a year later, they returned and notice what they do. Verse 27 of chapter 14. When they arrived... And gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They share what God's doing through them among the nations. They they report all these various stories of of what happened in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, and, and they they rehearsing what God has done in, in every case. At Redeemer, how encouraging it is to hear reports of what God is doing among the nations. I mean, I can't get enough of, of those kind of po- reports. You know, if Tim and Cheryl get back from Congo and they come up here and, and tell us about all that God did. Through them, or if you know some of our more permanent missionaries return and, and share what's going on, or just you know read the prayer updates on the city. All right, we got one from Chad Morgan. Chad Morgan's in India. We get this this morning. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And he says, what an amazing day today. Two women on the team and I drove an hour outside the city that we were in to attend a house church gathering. And before arriving to the village, we were told that persecution in the form of beatings were happening on an increasing basis. But the believers in the village refused to renounce the name of Jesus. This is Acts 14 right now. It's in your inbox, if you remember here. Go check it out. When we arrived, we went back into the city. We arrived, we went in the back of the city to avoid drawing attention to ourselves or the church gathering. However, almost immediately after stepping out of the car, we could hear the songs of praise being lifted to our Savior. The house church room was about the size of one of the normal size classrooms in the education building. But was filled well beyond capacity with 70 to 100 men, women and children who were lifting their voices and hands in praise and prayer. And I guarantee you, not a single one of them are complaining about how hot it is. Or, where's the nursery? They are loving it. Loving these people, coming to equip them with the word. Here we go. That's... You read things like that, that encourages you. We're part of something big, right? Bigger than Redeemer, bigger than Fort Worth. God is advancing his mission across the world. If you want to know of a very tangible way that you can participate in nurturing this church body with reports like that, I want you to see me or Bill Maddox to join a Barnabas team. Barnabas teams represent our missionaries on the field and they keep regular reports like the one we see here in Acts 14 before the body so come talk to us and we'll chat about how you might nurture this body so we've covered a lot of ground today but the main point kind of the big picture that holds it together here is God's grace Driving the missionary work, especially when that work involves tribulation. And in a culture that idolizes safety, Christians need these two reminders here. Following Jesus will mean tribulation. That's the first reminder. When we preach the gospel, we can expect persecution. When we confront the world's idols, we can expect suffering and we can accept we can expect to be misunderstood. But God's grace will sustain us. That's the other thing we must remember. God will help us speak boldly. God will help us to build His church. Opposition may come, but the gospel of grace will prevail to all peoples. So let's not allow the idol of safety to infest our decision to serve. To follow Jesus into these tough and uncomfortable places. Too often that's the case. Our culture has trained us to think, first, will it be safe? But as I said before, perfect safety is an illusion. This passage shows the mission isn't safe, but it's good. It's good. God's grace is perfect for every trial when we're following Jesus. The Lord's grace is sufficient to sustain through every tribulation when we're following Jesus. So let's imitate the apostles in their missionary work. Let's imitate their fear of God over the fear of man. Let's imitate their evangelism efforts. Let's take the risks into hard areas to love those who have never heard. Now I'm not just talking about overseas. I'm talking about here in Fort Worth. But that won't begin as long as the idol of safety enslaves us and shapes the main questions that we're asking. Freedom from the idol of safety comes by resting in God's all-sufficient grace. Now, you've seen grace revealed here in chapter 14. So my exhortation to to you and to, to me is let's learn to rest in that grace. Let's confess to our God our, our greatest fears and then let's learn to rest in His grace together. And as we rest, may He make us like we see here, Paul and Barnabas, taking risks to get the gospel to others. Um, why don't we pray?